0: And we're looking at a psalm that's probably fairly familiar to most people for several reasons. The first is it's at the beginning of the book of Psalms, right? So I know sometimes you can have that motivation. I want to read through all the psalms and then you sort of peter out towards the end. Well, if you do that, there's no doubt you've read Psalm 8 on multiple occasions just simply because it's at the front of the book of Psalms. But it's also one of the most important psalms in the Bible. It's quoted in multiple places in the New Testament. It's quoted by Jesus when He enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, when He clears the temple. He quotes this psalm to the Pharisees who are upset that He's cleared the temple and, and, and condemned them for their activities. He quotes this psalm as affirmation that He's the Messiah. And we'll see later in this sermon another significant place where this psalm was quoted. And so we see in Psalm 8 that it has an unmistakably messianic tone. We see that because the New Testament writers, inspired and filled with the Spirit, saw it. And they point our eyes to it. It's also clear in that that there's a connection with Jesus. But as we'll look at it this morning, as we'll we'll delve into the Psalms and into these these nine verses, it's pretty brief, we're also going to see a really clear connection to each one of us. And now we should see that every morning in every text, right? Every Sunday we should see that connection Here's the text, here's how it applies to us. But especially this psalm is designed explicitly to help us to see how humanity, how mankind, male and female, relates and connects to God. It's a psalm that reflects on the place of humanity in comparison to God's majesty. In comparison to God's glory. And so in nine verses, we see a reflection on just the awful, and I mean that in the good sense the awe-filled grandeur of God and how that compares with everything He's made. And it's meant, as we see that, to show us how to interpret ourselves, how to interpret humanity in comparison to God. What we're going to see this morning is that the majesty of God, the majesty of God properly humbles man's vanity, and elevates man's worth. So we're going to see from this psalm and this text, the majesty of God humbles humanity's vanity and also elevates humanity's worth. So look with me now at Psalm 8. Hear the holy and authoritative word of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The word of the Lord. May He write its truth upon our hearts. You bow your heads with me. Father, it is our heart's desire this morning to see You clearly. And in seeing You clearly, in, in gazing upon Your majesty displayed in these words, in seeing Your glory, Lord, that we would see ourselves more accurately. So Lord, we ask that You would do that. Reveal Yourself to us through Your Word. Speak to us through Your Word. These are Your words. They are inspired by Your Spirit. They are inerrant. They are filled with truth. They accurately describe You, the God of glory, and us, humanity, male and female, made in Your image. So help us to see and worship and respond accordingly, and do all of this for your glory, that your majesty, the majesty of your name might be declared in all the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's really two parts to the psalm, there's two sections. The first is a consideration of God's majesty. What does it mean that God is majestic? Now, Psalm 8 isn't an exhaustive treatment of God's majesty. There's no way even inspired words are going to exhaust God's majesty in a few verses. That's the first part of the psalm. The second part, then, is a look at humanity in light of that majesty. So we're going to break those two parts up into several subheadings, several things that highlight, first, how God is glorious, and then, second, how we should understand ourselves in light of that glory. So, the first thing we see in the psalm this morning is that David shows us God's name is majestic. The actual name of God is something that is glorious. David begins and ends the psalm, verse 1 and verse 9, with the exact same phrase O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! the beginning and the end of the psalm. Now, that's about as obvious as it gets in terms of underlining what the psalmist wants us to take away. There is majesty in God. There is glory. It all starts with God, and it all ends with God. And specifically, there is something magnificent just in considering God's name. Now, you should be seeing a trend in the last few weeks. We've had several Psalms now that have touched on a key part of the Psalm highlighting an aspect of God's name, His covenant name, Yahweh. Now, if you see that, it's because there's actually a remarkably consistent emphasis in the Psalms. They love meditating on the name of God. And there could be a temptation. I felt it in preparing this. You know, maybe, maybe I just try and highlight other aspects of the Psalm. We've touched on that in previous weeks. We don't need to hit on that again. When God's Word keeps circling back to a concept, it's because God wants you to keep circling back to that concept. And so we're going to look at that again this morning. We see it, but the point here is that the majesty of God's name isn't supposed to lead us into some sort of like philosophical, esoteric meditations on, on God's attributes. We're not, we're not supposed to get really abstract in thinking about God. What he's saying here is, when I consider God's name... I see majesty, which is to say, when I see who God is, when I consider what his name says about him, I see what he's done. I see the things that he does in the world, and that tells me about who he is. That's a lot more tangible, isn't it, than thinking about strange Greek phrases that give attributes to God. Those are important, and we need to think about them. But here, David is saying, you know what we want to do? We want to consider God's name, and by doing that, we just want to look and see everything he's done. The summary cry, you could say, is, how excellent is your name? How excellent is your name, Yahweh, our Lord? But it's as much a question as it is a statement. How excellent is his name? Look around you the glory of His name is being shouted throughout all the earth. David wants us to stop. He wants us to put down our cell phones, turn off our TVs, close the laptops, stop tweeting for a second. In a world that's busy and getting busier, He wants us to listen. You know what we hear? The entire universe is chanting Yahweh's majesty. It's like this Gregorian chant that the universe is participating in. And the refrain of the chant again and again and again is glory. The volume is so great. The bass is so cranked up in the way that all the universe is involved in this chant that the entire cosmos is like trembling in response to God's brilliance. That's the sense behind these words. And so when we listen to creation chanting, we listen to what we hear. We look around and we see. And God says it testifies to His majesty. And then David says we see God's power is majestic it's not just his name it's the very strength that he exudes so all the earth from pole to pole testifies that god rules we talked about this a few weeks ago remember you could say one of the, one of the overriding themes of the psalms is that the lord reigns so there's this inherent theology of lordship that exists in the psalms Our God reigns, Yahweh sits enthroned on high, and He reigns all things. There's this this phrase in here we see, the second title we see isn't Yahweh, it's actually our Lord. It's the Lord that's in lowercase letters, and that literally means the Sovereign One. But for all the awe that this should stir up, the Sovereign One, whose, whose majesty is chanted throughout all the cosmos, that Sovereign One is our Sovereign. He's our Lord. It's a very intimate title. And in that intimacy, in knowing God, who rules and reigns at all, as our God, David says we see his majesty. In God's right and ability to govern, we see more perceptively how glorious he is. Listen to how David celebrates this in Psalm 50. Listen to what he says. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. So you get that sense, right? How the universe is testifying. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. The heavens declare His righteousness. The heavens exist to declare His righteousness, to testify that He is glorious. For God Himself is judged. Verse 10, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. Everything you see when we look around, and David wants us to look around, shows us not just a beautiful earth, it shows us a beautiful God who created all those things. Go so back here in Psalm 8. David underscores all of this authority and all of this power In a really profound way. You want to know how powerful the Lord is? Look at verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, one translation says, nursing infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. God's rule is so powerful, so absolute, so totally unassailable. David says he can use helpless babies to enforce his will. Think about that for a second. God doesn't go about bragging, I'm so powerful, I can thwart you because I outnumber you. He does outnumber us. Remember? Everything's his. His power is so great though, he can take the most insignificant things and thwart what thinks it's powerful. This was driven home just yesterday. Hannah and I went to visit little baby Caden Hegarty in the hospital. So we go to the hospital, and here's this little newborn baby, not even a day old yet, and it's all, like, swaddled up, and the only reason there's any sort of stiffness to the baby is because it's tightly swaddled. Like, you, you get it, and you got to, like, carefully, you know, like, women are just natural about it; They're just like, oh, baby, and guys are like, you can tell when it's a guy's first time holding an infant, he's just like, super stiff, oh, my goodness, I'm going to break this thing. Like, so carefully... Make sure the head is supported. If I don't have like the perfect amount of six points of pressure on this head, it might fall off. And that's how guys treat little newborn infants because we feel it. We put it in our arms, and there's just there's nothing there. It's seven pounds. It's a little helpless baby. All it can do when it needs something is just cry. Totally helpless. Can't even support the weight of its head. Utterly dependent. And God, the Sovereign One, could conquer any enemy merely through using a helpless baby. That's not God exaggerating. That's true. A baby is helpless as little Caden. Here's the point. God doesn't measure strength like we do. We measure strength in very physical ways. As finite creatures, we think of strength means I need to have lots and lots of finite things. And if I've got lots and lots of finite things, that means I'm strong. So, if my army is going to be strong, then it's got to have lots and lots of finite humans that I can throw at the enemy. And that's how I'll win. That's not how God measures things. In fact, He expressly forbids the kings of Israel. He tells them, You are not to collect horses and chariots from Egypt. You are not to go to your pagan neighbors and ask them for support. You're not supposed to be like Israel is now, asking the United States, can we have some more F-16s? That's not how you operate. He does this because he wants to keep them from trusting in the wrong thing. If Israel defeats Jericho with massive siege weapons. They just obliterate the walls with these, these huge catapults. New technology that just overwhelms the people of Jericho. If Israel is able to, to leave Egypt because they overwhelm Pharaoh's army on the battlefield, and they just prove our, our soldiers are superior to your soldiers... If they enter Canaan and they just, they just conquer army after army because their forces are greater in number, you know what happens? They forget that God's power, His mighty right arm, is what brings deliverance and salvation. I love how David writes in Psalm 20, verse 6, Now I know that Yahweh the Lord saves His anointed, This is the king speaking now. The king who can't go collect horses and chariots like the other kings to build up his army. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name, the majestic name of Yahweh the Lord our God. And then in the very next Psalm, David shows us exactly why God ordains things this way. In Psalm 21, it's this long meditation on the king rejoicing in the way that God saves him by his strength. He starts out and says, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. It is grace that God can deliver us through weakness. It is grace that we're reliant upon him, and David sees it because You are strong and You operate and deliver us again and again and again in the face of superior forces, we know You get the glory. You're the one to worship. We exalt You. He ensures that He gets all the glory. He ensures that we respond with praise. So it means God's people don't hope in nuclear arsenals. We don't place ultimate hope in political victories or Supreme Court justices or economic superiority. Put not your hope in horses or chariots. Put your hope in the Sovereign One, in the name of Yahweh our God. Because when you do, in the midst of your weakness, when He stretches out His mighty right hand, you will be reminded. And you will see his glory. Next thing we see, David shows us, is God's creation itself is majestic. Now, he's already alluded to this at the beginning that the whole earth sings and chants to the majesty of God, but now he delves into greater detail. The sweep of God's majesty is shown as David looks at it and considers just the sheer vastness of the universe. You see it in verse 3. When I look at your heavens, when I look at the moon and the stars, there's this sense of just being overwhelmed. David, you can just picture him sitting there in a palace in Jerusalem and just looking up. And it just keeps going. And there's no end. And he senses this is vast. Now this is hard for us to do in a city. You go outside at night in the city, and there's all sorts of ambient light. You've got street lights all over the place. It's it's hard to get a real sense of the galaxy in the sky. I remember a few years back, I went with a group of guys up to the Boundary Waters in Minnesota. And so you go up to this place, and it's it's this series of this chain of lakes that are all over the place. You can't have any motorized boats, so you have to canoe and portage your way in. You're literally tens, if not maybe even 100 miles, I don't know how far it is, you're a long ways away from the closest source of electricity and electric light. So on our way in, we, we got in, and we the first day, we did like 16 miles of canoeing and portaging to the place where we were staying. And we got there, and we had this awesome campsite in this huge lake that was four miles across. So we set up our camp, and we got done, and we ate supper. And then that night, there was this huge boulder that was right above the water, and we could use it for swimming and all sorts of stuff. And that night, we went out, and we set our sleeping bags on the boulder. And we just looked up. There's no light to diminish the glory of the heavens. It's just huge and vast and filled with stars. And the next morning we got up. Because you're out in the wilderness, you get up early. We went back on that boulder and we saw the sunrise. And we opened to this psalm. And we read it together and we worshipped. How do you not? When you see God's stars. When you see the sun in that sort of context. But even free from the hum of city lights, we didn't fully grasp the enormity of the heavens. I did a little research into this in preparation. The Milky Way galaxy. So, think our galaxy, not the candy bar. The Milky Way consists of 350 discovered planets so 350 planets and earth is actually a little bit on the smaller side 350 and it's estimated there's so many they can't even really count it that there's between 200 and 400 billion billion with a b stars in just our galaxy just the milky way andromeda is the milky way's closest neighbor as far as galaxies go however by close we're talking it's 2.5 billion light years away from the edge of the milky way and one light year you know 2.5 billion light years that sounds like a lot we'll get this one light year is 5.87 trillion miles So take 5.87 trillion miles and multiply it by 2.5 billion and you get a sense of how far away our closest neighbor is in the universe. And that next-door neighbor, Andromeda, contains one trillion stars to our 400 billion. And those are just two examples. Astronomers estimate that there are over 100 billion Galaxies. Wrap your mind around that. There's a website called scaleofuniverse.com I found, and it's got this amazing. You just you take this little scroll, and you you can go up to the highest size, and it shows you just the immensity of the largest objects in the new universe, all the way down to the smallest things. Like things I don't even know what they're talking about. It's like dwarf quartz and all these weird things like what is that but you just you keep getting smaller and smaller and you're, you're looking at like a grain of sand and the grain of sand is seriously like only a third of the way to the smallest stuff you get to like large viruses which are way smaller than bacteria and you're still like not even close to the smallest stuff you get to electrons and neutrons and you're like oh my goodness and then you start going the other way And it shows you the dinosaurs. It shows you the St. Louis Arch. And it shows you the earth and the sun and the distance of the earth to the sun. And it shows you Saturn. Get this. Saturn is so light in density. If you had a pool that was big enough, it would float. The universe is enormous. And God has set his glory above the heavens. David looks up at the night sky and he marvels at the majesty of the God who created. And David has no idea how big it really is. He doesn't have any concept, but God, who inspired the awe, who whispers the words of this psalm to David, he knows, he knows perfectly well what he's ordaining David to write. Yes, David, my glory is above the heavens, above the 350 planets of this galaxy, above the 2.5 billion light years to Andromeda and its one trillion stars, above the 100 billion galaxies that humans will one day hypothesize exist. My majesty is above all of it infinitely above all of it. And then he really blows our minds. David reflects on all that and he says, it's the work of your fingers. God's not straining to create all that. It's just sort of pinky work. I'm just kind of fiddling, laying a little thing on my desk. and Oh, look at that wow, a universe, 46 billion light years. Oh, look at that, just kind of spoken into existence. Now I just kind of take like a basketball and spin it on my finger. There it goes. I kind of make it expand, and I do cool things with it, and way in the middle of it, there's this little tiny planet, this little kind of insignificant average solar system, a little average sun, and there's... And this planet, there's like this thing called, I call dry land. It's really cool. I, I made it separate from the water. So it's, it's really kind of fun. And on that land, there's like, there's huge creatures. And there's little tiny things. And there's this thing called man. Whew. There's a little thing called man. You, man. Consider my majesty. Consider my glory consider that even the vastness of the heavens falls short of fully encompassing my majesty. And when David considers that, when we consider that in contrast, he writes verse 3, When I look at your heavens, at the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the Son of Man that you care for him? The first thing David shows us as he transitions to the second part of the psalm is that in comparison to that, man is trivial. Man is small. The majesty of God properly, rightly humbles man's vanity. That's meant to make a claim upon you. When you consider the majesty of God in the ways that He's shown us, considering the majesty of God in His name and the things that that name has accomplished, considering the majesty of God in His power, considering the majesty of God in the finger work that He does with this massive universe, it is meant to take your pride and throw it in the dust. In the face of all this, There is no room for foolish exaltation of humanity. There's no room to believe like the Mormons do that someday, all of us sitting in this room, we can achieve Godhood. We can rule our own universes. Are you kidding me? You think you, sitting in that little chair that's like two and a half feet wide, are someday going to grow the capacity to rule a universe, billions of light years in distance. And it shows us the emptiness of of New Age belief. Beliefs about man's unlimited potential. When we consider the stars, and especially the God whose glory goes behind them, we know our limitations. We know our finiteness. We know our createdness. There was once a time when we were not. But there has never been a time when He was not. And knowing that, that's not a mean thing. That's a revelation of grace. Psalm 8 reminds us, reminds me, In the midst of all my temptation to self-centeredness, I am dependent. That everything I know in this world, everything I know, everything I've ever learned, everything I've ever observed, everything is constructed by God and centered in God. It's not all about me. It's all about him. How can it be all about me? I'm so inconsequential in light of all this. It has to be about him. If it was about anyone else, if he was working for the glory of anything else, it would be just utterly foolish idolatry. Why would it be all about that little 150, 200-pound bundle of cells? We are small in comparison to God. But that's where grace reveals even more of God's majesty. The question, what is man? It crushes our vanity. It also opens us up to something of immense significance. What is man in light of all that? Well, God, for all His majesty and greatness, for all His transcendence and sovereign power, David says, is mindful of us. God doesn't just remember us on our tiny little planet, in our average galaxy. Verse 4 says, the God who is above these enormous heavens, who is greater than it all, cares for us. Derek Kidner, helpful commentator on the Psalms, reminds us in commenting on this Psalm of something Isaiah discovered in his book. That when Isaiah considered the enormity of the universe... Yes, it made him feel rightfully small. But it wasn't just that, wow, it's so big and God's so transcendent and it just—it blows my mind how big it is. Kidner says, the point isn't to show us God's remoteness. That He's like way, way, way out there above the heavens. He's billions of light years away. You're never getting to Him. The point is to show us His eye for detail. That He planned no meaningless and empty universe, but a home for His family. In other words, He's given us way more square footage than we can ever use. Listen to how Isaiah puts it. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of His might and because He is so strong in power, not one is missing. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And He gives power to the faint. He takes all of that enormity he serves the faint-hearted. Isaiah 45, 18, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I am your Lord. I am your sovereign God. And I've created all of this because I wanted to make it huge. And I wanted it to have all sorts of detail that you would have a home. Isaiah 51.16 And I put My words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of My hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundation of the earth and saying to Zion, You are My people. And it's here that we see the same majesty that humbles us also elevates our dignity. Man is dignified by position. When we consider all of God's majesty that's been described in the psalm, it humbles us, but it also, rightly, stripping away our pride, elevates us. Verse 5, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. That finger work. You've put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. It's an echo of Genesis 1 and 2. Specifically, Genesis 1, 26-28. It's echoing the glory of what's happening in those opening chapters. That God has created it all. And David wants to remember, it's not just I'm thinking, oh, God created it. Cool, like the ground I'm standing on. No, God, he created it all. And that humbles me that he created it all. But it also is this amazing thought that he created it all. And at the end of that creation, he created a man. And he took a rib out of that man and he created a woman. And male and female, they bore the image of God. Humanity is the high point of all creation. Even as small and frail as we are. For all our dependency, God also makes us image bearers. He installs us as His representatives in creation. And so the Sovereign One who sits enthroned above the heavens enthrones us with dominion as His vice-regents. Rule in My name. Psalm 8 is an extravagant balance of glory and grace. On the one hand, God shakes us from the idolatry of self-exaltation. I'm so important because my car is so big and my rims are so shiny. No, you're not. He frees us from the idolatry of worshiping ourselves. And at the same time, on the other hand, He reminds us there's a way greater privilege to bear his image. He reminds us that there's no greater dignity in all creation than that which he has given to humankind. I like superhero movies. Some of them can be a little bit too cheesy. Some of the Spider-Man ones, not so much my cup of tea. Anything to do with Wolverine, a hairy dude that has claws come out of his hands, that's pretty cool. Kind of gets me excited. We're wrong if we think it would be cooler to be Wolverine. Your imagination is not better than God's. The people sitting in this room are far more glorious, far more reflective of the image of God than any concept of a superhero the human mind can make up. We make up those concepts because we want to imagine ourselves more like God. But there's no reason to do it. It's not creation that receives the highest glory. You ever ever seen those DVDs, Planet Earth? It's on the Discovery Channel a while back. It's like an 11 part series that just goes into just amazing detail. You you have to really see it in high definition with surrounds on it. You sit there, it's like, I just spent an hour watching pictures of the ocean. And it was cool. Like, I was entertained. And people watch it and they think, wow, amazing. That was so incredible. that pales in comparison to the glory of humanity. Male and female made in the Creator's image. 11-part series on planet Earth. And God says, well, I guess that's an okay summary, but guess what's even cooler? There's way more to it than that 11-part series, and I have made you rulers over it. I've put you in dominion over it. Creation is a great display of God's majesty and His gracious condescension is to commission mankind to become partakers and managers and stewards and image bearers of all that glory that we see. And that says volumes about the ethics of things like like human cloning. It says volumes about the evil the horrible evil of murder. Our society is confused. It kind of gets more revved up about animals being put to death than humans. There's something wrong in that. There's something inherently, fundamentally wrong. Now, don't be brutish to an innocent animal. You don't torture animals. That's, what, that's not what it is to to extend the goodness of God's rule and dominion. But don't confuse it. I had a good friend. He studied abroad in France for a summer. Really just wanted to have a long vacation for the summer and made an excuse he was taking a French class. But he told me this conversation and we were just flabbergasted by it. This girl who was just utterly relativistic in her thinking and completely denied any sense of God or that that there's something unique and special about humanity. And he was talking with her and discussing He says, okay, let me give you a scenario. And and he's kind of a quirky dude anyway, so this would be kind of in keeping with who he is. He says, okay, you've got two tubes. And you have to imagine Andy. This is just what he thinks. Two tubes. And in each tube, you've got a human being in one and a puppy in the other. And the two tubes are right there, and you can only save either the human being or the puppy. And you've got to push the button. Who are you going to save? And he's doing this to help her see, like, you know there's something special about the human being. And she sat there and she said, I don't know. I can't choose. There's something wrong with that. Psalm 8 tells us there's something confused in failing to see Abortion. Those little babies that God says He can conquer the earth with. There's nothing more than a bundle of cells. There's something wrong with with knowing there's more slavery practiced today than any time in human history and not caring. That sex trafficking is rampant. Little girls as young as 12 years old get taken and ripped from their homes. Why should you care? Because that little baby and that little girl bear the image of God. And it also speaks volumes on the other side. It speaks volumes about the great privilege all people, every person has to be faithful in this royal commission. The first forty book of the book of Psalms, the first forty Psalms have a very royal theme to them, a very royal tenor. And this is no different. It's just going to creation and saying, you know what creation's about? It's about our God, the King, creating, and then saying, you're going to be my governors over this world that I've created. So go out, I commission you as your king, go out throughout all the land and rule. Extend my rule, extend the goodness of my rule. Let people see it and experience it. Let them know that I am king and that my kingdom is a blessing. It means there is dignity, reflected majesty in the scientist laboring for years who will one day discover, quote unquote, the next galaxy. There's dignity in that. But there's also dignity in the 7th grade teacher who first captured the imagination of the young boy who would become that scientist. There's dignity in my grandfather's hands, just these gnarled, almost deformed, Just they've been through so much, these hands that have carried five-pound buckets of feed and in freezing temperature in hot days, who vaccinated hundreds of pigs And now he's way into his 80s and those hands are just gnarled and the knuckles are just all funky looking. There's dignity in that. And there's reflected majesty in the chemist who sits in a lab and designs the vaccinations. There's potential for faithful image-bearing in the president who wields the sword to restrain evil and prevent chaos according to the sovereign one's good pleasure. God ordains that the government would have the sword to do that. There's dignity in serving in those roles. And there is quiet significance in the mother who first taught the president to write his name that will now sign all of those laws. Psalm 8 reminds us there is more of God's signature in the human cell than in all the celestial bodies. And more of God's signature in humanity than in all the heavens. But verse 2 also whispers a reluctant nod to what comes right after Genesis 1 and 2. Psalm 8 isn't just a story of glory created, it also reminds us that this reflected glory was tainted. It speaks of the enemy. The avenger. The opponent of this glorious God. And that's where we see this psalm correctly only when we see it in light of Jesus. The final point is this. Humble majesty, what happens when humanity considers itself rightly, it's rightly humbled and rightly sees itself as majestic bearing God's image, That humble majesty is perfected in Jesus. There's a tragic disconnect between the triumphant joy of verses 5-9. to Crowned with glory, given dominion, ruling over everything you see, bearing my name. There's a tragic disconnect between that and what we experience in the world, isn't there? The enemy, that avenger in verse 2. He successfully twisted our gaze inward. Instead of looking up like David and then saying, oh, to be a man, to be a king after your own heart, the God of the heavens. He gets twisted inward. And He starts doing things far below what He's meant to do. So men and women no longer live for the majesty of their Creator. We start to seek our own dominion and our own glory. Is there a greater confirmation of this? Is there a greater indictment than the fact that the astronomer, the one who gazes into the vastness with these massive telescopes looking farther than any man has ever looked before, that that person sees the vastness night after night, but is deaf to the thunderous chant of the majesty of God? concludes instead, it's the product of randomness. The product of chance. The scientist still wants to believe in a reason for human dignity. Still wants to believe that there's a reason why murder is evil. But in his blindness, the telescope merely testifies that you're puny and inconsequential. By removing God from the equation, we are left to delude ourselves into thinking that we matter at all. That's a true statement. If you really believe there is no God, why do you feel outrage when a gunman slaughters children? Why do you feel outrage that a bundle of cells just stops living and now decomposes and enters into the circle of life, you feel outrage. Because as much as you want to mute it, God testifies otherwise. Psalm 8, there is unfortunate witness to just how far short humanity falls from achieving what we're called to in this passage. And this is where the author of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Brings an even deeper sense of awe into the discussion. The interprets the significance of this psalm, Hebrews 2. It has been testified somewhere, Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the Son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Did you see that the first time you read the psalm? Thank you, Holy Spirit. The author of Hebrews correctly takes the general descriptions of all mankind and applies them directly to one man. He can do this because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the hopes expressed in Psalm 8. He's the fulfillment of every hope expressed in every page of the Bible. Jesus is the fulfillment of of everything God hoped humanity would be. He is the perfect man. He's the only one who lives up to this huge calling, to reflect majesty, to extend dominion, to be crowned with glory. We'd be hard-pressed to find a place where the true majesty of the Incarnation is set down in such awesome detail than when Hebrews meditates on Psalm 8. Think back to everything we said earlier about the galaxy, right? About the universe beyond our galaxy. The one who is seated in glory, far beyond and above the 46 billion light-year radius of the universe, that one has come to dwell on a tiny speck of dust known as Earth. The one more infinite than the vastness of 100 billion galaxies has willingly been humbled to inhabit the finite space of human flesh with all its weakness and frailty. The one whose metaphorical fingers set the stars in place, whose word of power holds it all together, now has literal fingers and a literal mouth. And in one awesome act, God showed just how capable he is to magnify his name through weakness. You, my glorious Son, High King of Heaven, Heir of all things, will inhabit flesh so that in the weakness of that flesh you can die and show my power to save. By putting to death the Son of God True humanity goes to the grave to underscore the breathtaking majesty of divine glory. He is mighty to save. His strength is so immense, He can save through the weakest vessels. Every purpose for humanity. This is the point of Psalm 8 we see in hebrews every purpose for humanity described in this passage finds fulfillment in him every hope is met in him there's no true humanity there's no accurate identity of who you are outside of him who has come to restore all of his redeemed to their rightful place through his life and death and resurrection it all happens through him outside of him you don't get it you can have multiple PhDs in the biggest telescope in the world and you won't know what it's all about. Because it's all about Him, as the author of Hebrews says, namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting. It was planned. It was right. It was glorious that He, for whom and by whom all things existed, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. In Christ we see the majesty with greater detail. Psalm 8 is really cool. It's way cooler in light of Hebrews. Psalm eight nine. O Lord, O Yahweh, O Jesus, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Would you bow your heads.